Matthew 9, starting in verse 1. We'll go through 8. And speaking of Jesus, it says, In getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Hope you all are doing well. We're in Matthew 9, as you read. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. But um, let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for the Holy Spirit who teaches us all things, who leads us into truth, who convicts us and conforms us to Christ. And so, God, as we look at um, a very familiar text, which um, can become very rote, I pray that you would do the supernatural. We pray, God, that um, as we look at something that's very familiar, we need you to come and take what is familiar and drive it down deep into our hearts and bring out deep affections for Christ. Bring out a deep love to give Him glory. We desperately need this to happen this morning, Father. I love you and I pray that you would help me and that I would speak everything that's true. You would keep me from error and I pray that you would conform my heart to be more worshipful of Christ as well as everyone here. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been studying through the book of Matthew now for strong nine months or so. Uh, we started back in December in Matthew chapter 1. And so today we've come into Matthew chapter 9. And we, we shifted after we did verses, uh, chapters 5 through 7 where we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. We shifted into these two chapters, 8 and 9, and kind of the big idea of chapters 8 and 9 that Matthew is wa- really wanting us to see is the authority of Jesus. We saw that he was doing uh, kind of his call to mission and his, his healings that he was doing in chapters 1 through 4. And then we see this major teaching discourse of, of, five, of five major teaching discourses that will be throughout the book of Matthew. But the first one is the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, where Matthew has pointed us out to these healings. And now he's shown us, based on these uh, things that he said on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' authority is far greater than we can think of. He's done healings and now he's done authority. And now we've gone into chapters 8. Eight and nine, where Matthew is really wanting to establish the authority of Jesus, and he's doing it by progressing through these healings that he's been doing through eight and nine. And each healing is progressing to a, a much larger, grander kind of thing in nature. And that's that's where we're getting to now. And what I think is the pinnacle of the miracles that he's doing is in chapter nine. And we can see all the miracles that he's done thus far in chapter eight leading up to this have all been physical in nature. And what I mean is we see him healing a leper 
and 8.1. We see him healing the centurion's servant. We see him healing Peter's mother-in-law. We see him um, and, and this miracle or this authority establishing happening in 8.18 where he's looking at people. This isn't something that we do. This is something that only God does. He looks at people and he says, follow me. And we, we know that there's been an establishment where he's trying to help people see. I have the authority that no one else has. I have the authority that was spoken of in the Old Testament of this coming Messiah. Therefore, I am God. And we see that after he calls people in, in 8.18 and following, you get up to 8.23, all of a sudden Matthew is showing us Jesus' authority that he has over creation, where he looks at the creation and it, and it obeys him. He tells a storm to stop and it just goes calm. And then if that's not enough, it builds up to even more and um, and 828 and more where he looks not just at the created nature, but the things unseen, the spiritual realm where there's demons. And he tells them to obey and they obey and they go into a pigs. And so it's just been going up and up and up in nature. And now all of a sudden we're going to see Jesus do something that's not like that. It's different. We're going to see him look at someone who's paralyzed and not heal them, which is what has kind of been the past right away. He does. But the first thing he looks and only God can do this, establishing his authority. He looks at this man and he tells him, your sins are forgiven. So Matthew is leading up progressively in nature of the things that he's doing all the way to establish Jesus authority. And now he's saying that this man, Jesus, has the authority to forgive sins. Now, this is a big deal. Because in the Old Testament, there were men who had done these kinds of things. Moses had thrown down his, his staff and it turned to a snake. So there were, there were people in the Old Testament who had done these physical things, these kinds of things that Jesus had already done. But all of a sudden, Jesus does something in 9 verse 2 that has not been done and elevates his authority above anything that's been ever happening. So this is the progressive nature of which Matthew has been doing for us in chapters eight and nine. So the big idea of eight and nine is the authoritative power of Jesus. Now we're going to, um, I wanted to try to do it in one sermon, but, but, but it's just impossible. I wanted to try to do chapter nine verses one, through 17, because I believe in chapters 9, 1 through 17, there's a big idea. Like if we have Jesus authority, there's this there's this idea based on his authority that Jesus is trying to show us. And Matthew's trying to show us in verses 1 through 17. And that is that Jesus has a mission. Jesus has a mission. And all we're going to have time for today out of these three uh, of Jesus has a mission is one. And that's just in the first set of verses here in one through eight. And then, of course, the second one will be in nine through 13, where we can actually see his mission, specifically there in chapter in verse 13, where he's calling the sinners. And then we can see in 14 through 17, the ultimate fulfillment of his mission one day with his coming kingdom. But that's next week. I don't want to give too much away. I want you to still come back and want to hear it. So I'm going to do any of that. Uh, we're just going to look at at the first uh, set of verses there in eight and uh, verses one through eight. And again, the big idea is, is Jesus's authority, which he's been establishing all in chapter eight. Now we're zooming in on chapter nine, one through 17. And the point of this is based on the authority he has. He's come for a mission. He has been doing healings. Now, all of a sudden, this shift has happened and Christ is going to start revealing to us his mission, which is ultimately fulfilled in the cross. Yes. And that's how he's going to save them is by the cross. But he's going to start illustrating this mission that he has um, with this first set of verses and even the next couple sets. So um, here's the deal. 
more than likely, you've heard this story before. More than likely, if you spend any time in church at all. Um, and if you haven't spent any time in church at all, you've heard this story before because we just read it. <laughs> so here's the deal. What I don't want for you to do is to say, okay, I got that story, heard it before, gotcha. Um, what's next? Instead, what I want for you and for me, both of us, to kind of find ourselves just like the people there in verse 8. At the end of our time today, I'm, I'm really wanting for all of us to be awestruck. To be awestruck. It says there, the crowds, when they were afraid, they were awestruck. Um, they glorified God. So based on this wonder that begins to fill our hearts, on this amazing authoritative power that Jesus has and the ability that he or the, the mission that he has and, and is extending to us to call, make, go make disciples that we would leave here the same way they were wanting to glorify God. I really want us all today to leave here worshiping, which is the end of all things, the end of everything that's happened in our life. The end goal of everything is that our worship would be pointed towards back towards to Jesus. So that's that's where that's kind of where we're going. That's what's going on. And that's what I have been praying for. And that's what I want to happen in my heart and yours, that we wouldn't just hear a familiar story and say, got it. Now it's time to go get some lunch. But instead, we would leave glorifying Christ because we have just looked at this man who is establishing his authority more than anybody ever has. And we cannot help but fall in love with him more deeply and want to worship him. As I've said, as we've been going through eight and nine, one of my main goals is not for you to look at Jesus interacting with the leper and say, oh, he's nice to the leper. He's nice to the outcast. So that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be nice to the outcast. Where are the outcasts? Are you an outcast? Because I need to be nice to you. I don't want for us to just follow the example. Yes, we should follow the example, but that's not the only thing I'm desiring. Instead, uh, whenever we're looking at the examples, I want you to say, this man had so much compassion that he would interact with the outcast. That should inflame my heart. That should make me so much more desirous of wanting to know him. And that's what I'm wanting. So as we're looking at these stories, which are probably familiar for you, that you would find your heart being amazed again at the compassionate nature of Jesus as he interacts with people and re-falling in love or whatever it is with just how glorious he is. And just like they are, they're, they're astonished all the time. It says in 728, they're astonished. And here we're going to see in, in 9, 8, that they're afraid or awestruck. Everyone seems to, in, in 827, it says that the disciples marveled. These are the kinds of um, expressions that should be in our hearts. Now, um, you might not be wired to have this major like... <laughs> physical expression like whoa like you're not gonna i don't expect anybody to stand up and say amazing i don't expect that uh, it would be awesome but i don't expect it but what i think is however god's wired you you should express that however he's wired you if it's just internal and your heart just becomes totally enamored with the person and work of jesus that's what i want however he's wired you whatever your personality is i want and i'm praying that you would be and i would be like these disciples as they're seeing this amazing man with this amazing authority doing these amazing things and now because we've just moved from healing people to forgiving sin i mean forgiving sin all right so let's go ahead and look at it verse one this is the sixth miracle in chapters eight and nine in progression. Um, and 
they're all, as I said, progressing to an amazing thing where he is forgiving sin in 9-2. And I'm going to, uh, in, in this particular text in 1-3-8, interact a little bit with the book of Mark as well. Um, Mark gives a little bit more details in the story than Matthew does because Mark has a different agenda. They all write Gospels. The the first four books of the Bible are called the Gospels and the writers write their Gospels with specific things in mind. And Matthew is writing his Gospel to Jews and right now specifically in 8 and 9 is writing this, this section right here to point out the authority of Jesus. And it's all he's wanting these, these Jewish people to see is this man is the Messiah and he has authority. Mark's not interested in those kinds of things. He throws in a little more details. Matthew leaves out some details. doesn't mean anything. It's fine for Matthew to leave out details. Um, Matthew is a true man. Like he is a detail <laughs> lever outer. You know, all you wives know exactly what I'm talking about. What happened, Foot? I don't know. Something. Oh, you don't ever know details. So that, that's what's going on here. Matthew is just leaving out some details. So I'm going to interact with Mark a little bit and, and throw in some details that I think can help us fill in some of the some of the narrative. All right. So it says, and getting in the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. We know in 413, this is Capernaum. This is where he grew up. This was his own city. So he gets into the boat. He goes across over to Capernaum to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic. Now we know Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter two is the same story. And in Mark chapter two, it says that four men brought this, this paralyzed man. So we know it's four particular men that brought him. Uh, and it says, and behold, some people brought a paralytic lying on a bed and then it just switches over. It kind of just assumes all these other things that maybe, or it doesn't assume, but just doesn't tell us all these other details that Mark says. And Mark tells us in two, I think it's verse three and four. What happened was these four men brought uh, their, their paralyzed friend to see Jesus and Jesus was teaching and it was, the house was so jam packed that they couldn't even get to Jesus. It was just, it was absolutely full. They couldn't get to him. And so they took, I don't even know how, but they took the paralyzed man with them up on top of the roof. It says that they removed the roof in some way and lowered him down. So there's a couple of things I want us to grab from this before we continue moving on. The first thing is, it says some people brought to him a paralytic, brought to him a paralytic. So what I want in verse two to kind of just to throw out as an application for you is this. Um, this is the exact same nature, uh, thing that we should be doing. You should be finding people that need to come face to face with Jesus and bringing them to Jesus. Now, a way to do that, of course, is inviting people to church. And I'm not discounting that as, as a way to do it. Um, so if you invite people to church, yes, but that's not like the, the actual thing. I think the more just can go a little bit further and say, don't bring people to church. Yes, do. But don't just bring people to church. Instead, bring people to Jesus. So wherever you are and wherever context you find yourself in class or work or family or whatever, um, you want to find ways to bring them to Jesus. You can be the one that proclaims the gospel to them. And that's, that's basically what we see here is they're bringing them to G he, they're bringing this man to Jesus. Now, um, one other thing I want us to see is, which I pointed over to Mark is Mark said that these men were so serious about their friend having an encounter with Christ that they removed the roof. They removed the roof. So this is maybe a wake up call or maybe a newsflash. I'm not sure. But sinners live really, really messy lives. Really messy lives. 
And whenever they're really living really messy lives and you know they need Jesus and you try to tell them Jesus and it do, tell them about Christ and it doesn't work the first time, it's going to take a lot of effort, a considerable amount of effort. And so I'm wondering if um, as you're thinking through or praying through and, and trying to interact with people and you're not seeing fruit, it, maybe not. I mean, the Lord is who saves. But if you're not seeing fruit, perhaps obstacles are hitting and you're and I are giving up too quickly. I wonder if there's someone that we need to remove the roof for. Like, is, are we making every effort we can to find people and bring them to Christ? Are we willing to um, remove the roof for them, for, for them to meet Jesus? Because they live messy lives. It's going to take a lot of work, more than likely, for them to meet Christ. And are we willing to do all the work it might require? Whenever you find someone... Uh, that really wants to know Jesus, a couple, and maybe they're living together. And they say, I mean, this is something that's going to take a lot of work and that I've encountered. We believe in Jesus. We want that. But we can't afford not to live together. Um, but we want to become Christians. And you're like, <laughs> you can't do that. Well, we can't, we can't not do it. We have to live in the same house. We can't afford it. Okay, well, that's going to actually take me a good bit of effort and work to get inside their messy lives and figure it all out with them. Or maybe they have really hard problems that need extended levels of counseling that you can't help them with. It's, it's going to take time for you to get in their life, find the people that, that can help them. M- my point is this. Um, I think all of us, and I, I'm guilty of this as well, whenever we really get involved in some, some really, you know, some really some people that need Jesus, and it takes a lot of work, sometimes we bow out too fast because it's just too much. I don't have time for this. My schedule's busy. I've got, you know... Xbox later and I got it. No, I got all kinds of stuff, right? Like I'm busy. Maybe we can not be so busy. So that's just the, that's the thing I wanted us to see here is they were willing to remove the roof. Now, this is an unexpected little interaction here because the way the, the healings or the miracles or however you want to say have been progressing each time is someone who is messed up or has a problem or whatever, comes up to Jesus, they say something to him, and then Jesus will do something back. That's the way it's been. But here, that's not the way it's been. Uh, That's not the way it happens. They bring him, and the guy doesn't say anything to Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the first one to talk. And, as before, whenever they say something, Jesus actually heals him. Like, whatever is physically wrong or physically going on, that's what Jesus addresses. But that's not the case here. So it's very different in two ways. Jesus instigates the conversation immediately and he doesn't heal him. He forgives his sins, which is not what was expected. Not what was expected at all. It says this, when Jesus saw their faith, and don't forget that this is a a little thing that Matthew's trying to point out to us, that faith is what's necessary. Uh, he, He illustrates that for us in 826, where he says that the disciples had little faith. And also in 810, where the centurion exercises great faith. And so we see that there's a there's a um, kind of a reoccurring theme of faith being necessary. And he says he sees their faith. He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sons are forgiven. Your sons. I did that the other time. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. All right. So um, a couple of things I want to point out. And then we just have to ask some 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 obvious kind of con- contextual questions. First of all, he says, take heart, which means he's showing compassion to the man. Some commentators say that this man 
knew was more than likely paralyzed because of sin. And so he's been struggling and dealing with the, the consequences of his sin, which made him paralyzed. And he's coming up to this man and he knows that more than likely this man knows that the sin that he had done had caused it. And he's telling him, hey, take heart. And then he tells him, my son, Jesus was somewhere around the age of 30 here. We don't know how old this man was, but more than likely he's older than Jesus. And Jesus is calling him my son. Why would he do that? Why is Matthew specifically pointing that out to us? Because what Jesus has been showing us in chapters 8 and 9 is that he is establishing authority. And Jesus is calling him my son. Now, that's pretty big, but not near as big as what follows after my son. When he says, your sins are forgiven. He looks at the paralyzed man. This is not what the, the rip roopers offer. We're thinking they're thinking we'll rip him off, rip off the roof. We're going to send him down. And Jesus is going to say something or touch him or something's going to happen. And he's going to hop up and he's going to he's going to walk out of here. And he just looks at him and he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're the friends, if you're the friends, what are you thinking? We got ripped off. Maybe <laughs> like that's not what we wanted. Wait, Jesus, stop. We said, you know, we wanted obviously we wanted par- or the paralyzed guy. You're thinking, OK. But I'm still lying here. I'm still lying here. What is going on here? Jesus's words are quite unexpected. Very, very unexpected. And he's doing this because he's wanting to demonstrate to the people that are present that he has authority. He has authority. The scribes were very acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, and they are very acquainted with um, who has the authority to forgive sins. And he's wanting to establish his authority. So instead of forgiving, I'm sorry, for instead of healing him first and then forgiving his sins, because they would have just said, oh, anybody can heal. He forgives his sins first, which makes the scribes think, what the world's going on? You can't do that. And we can see their reaction. Look what happens here. When they say, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. This man is blaspheming. So he's, they think he's blaspheming because he's claiming to do something which only God can do, which is forgive sins. And so in their mind, they're thinking, you can't do that. Only God can, can forgive sin. So you're a blasphemer. Now, in the narrative, we can understand that that's the, that's the position of the thought of the scribes. But for us, who are actually have the benefit of the entire book of Matthew... We can see a little bit more. We, we live on this side of the cross, praise God. And we can, as we're reading this, Matthew's trying to do something for us. He's trying to remember in 817 and 817 where it says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah right, right after he starts healing tons of people that are afflicted with all kinds of diseases and, and everything. It says that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So he's healing people, fulfilling prophecy that was foretold by the, by Isaiah and saying he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So in that particular verse right there, Matthew is wanting you to see these healings are not just healings. Instead, this is pointing you over to the cross. That's going to happen in a few years. This man's going to die for everyone. Die for their sins. And so Matthew has already taken the liberty of pointing to the cross and saying everything's about the cross. And so here we have the benefit as we're reading this and the scribes are freaking out like, what are you doing for giving sins? We know that this is a pointing to the cross, which is supremely more important for this man's sins to be forgiven than to be healed. If all Jesus does is look at him and says, your sins are forgiven and then that's it then what's more important in the terms of eternity? 
for the man to be healed for his next 40 years and be able to walk and go to hell or for him to stay paralyzed the rest of his life, but live eternally with God in heaven. Which one's more important? Obviously, if he stays paralyzed and goes to heaven, that's far better. So Jesus has done what is far better. He has done what is far better and he addresses what is primary here. So what's Jesus doing? What's the point of what he's trying to do? All right, here's the deal. This is the one point that I'm going to show you this week, and I don't have enough for next for the other two. We're going to do those next week. Jesus has authority and he has a mission. His mission is we see this here in verses one through eight to forgive sin and transform sinners to forgive sin and transform sinners. That's what God is doing. He has a mission. Now we're going to see. His mission is to forgive sin and transform sinners. And then we're going to see in the next part, he also has a mission to call people to join him. That's what happened in the next one. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. So anyway, so the mission is to to forgive sin and transform sinners. Now, the physical transformation that happens in the life of this paralyzed man physically, that's the spiritual transformation that happens to all of us. He's paralyzed. He's He's unable to do anything for himself. And Jesus heals him physically, and then he goes. And this is what he's done for us spiritually. We are unable to do anything for ourselves. We are, as Ephesians 2 says, dead spiritually. And when he declares us saved or justifies us um, because of our faith, then we are made to go now. We're healed completely spiritually, and we go live a life of mission. So that's, that's what happened here. That's what's going on. And the reason why Jesus does it this way, the reason why he says, I'm going to forgive your sins first and then heal you is because Jesus is establishing his authority, which is I have a mission. I'm here to see sinners get saved. That's why I did that first. And in this moment, with the paralyzed man laying completely flat of his back, he's just laying there. He is a completely different man now. Everything has changed. Though physically, it seems nothing has changed. Everything has changed. So, what about these scribes who are freaking out and look at this man and with everything in the world that's changed in his life, think to themselves, nothing's changed. Look at him. He's still laying on his back and you're a blasphemer. You can't do that. Well, he's establishing his authority and he does it in the reverse order of which we think forgive sins and then heals him for these purposes to show his authority and show that he has a mission. And so he says, it says, behold, the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Um, they're freaking out because they're saying only God alone. You're demeaning God, Mr. Jesus, by claiming that you can do what only God alone does, which is forgive sins. This, this is the, th- the thoughts of the scribes. And just so we know, um, the next three sections are all met with opposition. Here we see in this first section, opposition of the scribes. And then when Jesus calls Matthew, opposition of the Pharisees. And we see the question about fasting, opposition of the Pharisees. So the next three sections are all dealing with, as he's establishing his authority to have a mission, opposition by these Pharisees. They're just freaking out. Um, and so I think verse four is awesome. I wish that I could do this. It would probably make my marriage a lot better um, or maybe not so good. 
are just really depressing. But anyway, it says, but Jesus knowing their thoughts, I think it'd be great because I would know what she wants, but then I would know what she thinks. So anyway, um, but Jesus knowing their thoughts um, or Mark says perceiving in his spirit, he's perceiving in his spirit. So he he's able to know what's going on in the minds of these scribes. Um, and they're, you know, I'm sure astounded that he does this. And he looks over at him. He goes, why do you think evil in your hearts? Why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, notice he uses the word evil. He says the thoughts that you're having of saying that I can't forgive sin are evil. As a matter of fact, he's saying the thoughts that you're having are saying that I can't forgive sin are sinful. He's not saying he's not saying them. I see that you're just confused. He's not assigning confusion or assigning a lack of knowledge to them. He's calling them sinners. He's saying that what they think is evil. Why is he saying that what you are thinking right now is evil? Basically, he's saying this. I have just been establishing my authority. I've been showing that I have authority and you don't believe that that's that I don't have the authority and I don't I'm not who I say I am. That's sin. When you question the authority that has been rightly given to me by the father, that's sin. That's evil. I have the authority to do this. So that's what he says. And then he asks a rhetorical question in verse five. Um, he, he asks the question, doesn't give him time to answer it. It's a rhetorical question, a device that he's being that he's using to help them understand. And he says, for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk well, at first thought for us living in 2011. We're looking at it where we're just completely kind of overloaded with always needing empirical data in order for something to be true. We say, well, which one's easier to say? Um, I think easier to say is your sins are forgiven because I can look at somebody and say your sins are forgiven and you can have no idea. So that seems like that's easier to say, not rise and walk. Cause if I say someone rise and walk and they don't get up, then that's pretty obvious that I'm a big fraud. So it seems like when we're reading it, well, the easier thing to say is your sins are forgiven, but the scribes who were well acquainted with the Old Testament and had had experienced these kinds of miracles in their life knew what's what's more difficult to say. That's why they're freaking out, because they say what's difficult, more difficult to say is to take the role of God and say your sins are forgiven. And so that's what he says, which is easier to say your sins forgiven or rise and walk. And they're all thinking, well, what's easier to say is rise and walk because you're not supposed to say your sins are forgiven. And then he says in verse six. Then he says, this is where it gets awesome. This is what he says. But that you may know that the son of man has authority. There's our key word as we've been establishing all through chapters eight and nine. Matthew is establishing his authority. We're going to see it again at the very end of verse eight. But that, that you may know that the son of man has authority, that you may know that I'm God, but that you may know that I have a mission, which is to come and save sinners and transform their lives. I want you to know that I am him who's been spoken of in the Old Testament and I have the authority to forgive sin and Transform sinners because I am here with a mission, which is there in 813 to not call the righteous, but sinners to repentance that you may know that I'm here to do this. He looks at the man and he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. In verse seven, and he rose and went home. I guess he picked up his bed. I don't know. Matthew's again, he leaves out details. I'm assuming he picked up his bed. So. 
He did this because he wants them to see that he is Christ and he has a mission. He takes compassion on this man. He doesn't just leave him laying flat of his back, forgiven of his sin, which we know is actually better. He even does the secondary thing and heals him of being paralyzed and then sends him. All right. And then we get to verse eight. Then we get to verse eight. And it says this. And when the crowds saw it, so there's many people present. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. Now, this word afraid um, doesn't doesn't give us all the the fullness of the word. They weren't just fearful. Um, They were also awestruck. We've kind of we use the word awesome. Like, ah, it's awesome. This cheeseburger is awesome. You know, rockets going in space is awesome. Like we just everything's awesome. My five year old can read. That's awesome. You know, like everything's awesome. And so it's kind of minimized this word. This awesome is just awestruck. It's it's what's happening in in eight twenty seven when it says they are marveling. It's what's happening in seven twenty eight when it says they're astonished. It's this. I can't believe this man. I can't believe him. He's, I'm afraid and I'm awestruck. So that's kind of what's going on. There's a, there's a ton of emotional feeling being um, pushed into this word that might not be coming out for us that we need to try to feel the magnitude of. Because again, this is a familiar story. And a man, just like you and me, who is also God, looked at someone and f- said, your sins are forgiven. And all of a sudden, this man's eternity was completely changed. I can't do that and you can't do that. You can't look at someone as bad as you might want to and say, your sins are forgiven and hold any weight eternally. And he did. And they're saying, the crowd saw it. They were afraid. They were awestruck. And then it says this, and they glorified God, which is where I've been driving, which is where I'm hopefully trying to pull my heart towards and all of our hearts towards that we would want to leave here glorifying God that at the end of the sermon today that we would want to stand and glorify God through song and then after we are finished singing that we would go and that we would want to glorify God with our lifestyle being sent on mission just like Jesus to see sinners be transformed by the gospel as we proclaim it to them and God saves them we want to leave glorifying God. And then it says this one little last part. They were when the crowd saw it. They were afraid and they glorified God. And then it says this. This is what they said. They were saying who had given such authority to men, given such authority to men. And so inside what's going on there as they're thinking and in, 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 in it, they're saying, OK, God gives authority to men to do stuff. He gives authority to men to heal. And all of a sudden, this new man that's come in, Jesus, has started doing healing. So he must have some kind of levels of authority, just like some of the old prophets. Now, he just said, your sins are forgiven. And they're thinking, wait a second, <laughs> that's a new one. You're not supposed to do that. Um, authority is given, has been given to men to do healings, but not start forgiving sins. That's a new one, Jesus. And then he says, okay, you want to make sure that I can forgive sin? Watch this. And he tells this man to get up. And now they're saying, oh, well, this is all brand new. This man not only has the authority to heal, but this man has authority to forgive sin. This is a new deal where this man can forgive sin as well, which is true. 
but not quite um, full enough. It's still limited. Because remember, we're, we're looking inside the narrative right now and we're seeing what's going on inside the narrative. We're saying that's why they're thinking that. But because we have the benefit of kind of not being inside the story, but we have the benefit of the text. And Matthew has been building up to this. He's been building up to verse 9, 8. So when he says they glorified men, we're also thinking Jesus is not just man, but 118 says that he was born of a virgin. 118 says that he's come to save his people from their sins. So he's not just man, but he's also God. So it's kind of Matthew's lifting up to us and saying, this man, Jesus has authority and they got that right. But what they're missing and what's going to eventually be shown to them as he eventually goes to the cross is that he is God as well. So he has the authority to do this. He was born of a virgin. He saved his people from his sins and that he has the authority now because he is the God man, because he is the Christ, because he is the Messiah. To go and save people from their sins, not just by declaration to this man, but being able to go to a cross and die as the perfect sacrifice for sin. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. So Jesus has a mission to forgive sins, to forgive sinners and transform sinners lives Because of the cross, because of the gospel, because of the good news that he died on the cross and took our punishment and all of his righteousness now has been given to you. And all of your sin was imputed to him on the cross. And then when God, when you exercise faith in his work on the cross, God declares you. He looks at you and he says, righteous, innocent, 100 percent justified. So though you may have indwelling sin. You now walk in newness of life. You now walk being completely justified. You now take up this mission to go see sinners be transformed by the gospel. And you proclaim the message of the cross. So just to sum up a couple applications for us is this. We see men overcoming any obstacle to bring their friend to meet Christ. Maybe. All of us can take note of that, that we can start making much greater efforts than what we are making. Willing to rip the roof off the building for people to meet Jesus. Willing to do the hard work. That's the first takeaway, I think, that despite any obstacles, we should be willing to bring people to Christ. The second thing is this. They brought this man. And he says, forgive sins. And they're like, what? You know, that's what I'm assuming. And then he heals them. And all of a sudden, everybody, it says the crowds were all absolutely afraid and awestruck. They were amazed. Absolutely amazed. I think one of the big takeaways for us is that we could start finding ourselves amazed. That we could start expecting when God moves to be Amazed. Maybe it's been so long since we were just amazed that God saved a sinner. Maybe in your own heart and maybe in your neighbor. But this amazement that seems to be reflective so far in all these texts that we're reading, I'm wondering if that needs to be in our own lives. Just a step back amazement that God just moved. And then, of course, 
The last one is we see in eight that they glorified God. Maybe the third application is that we should seek to glorify God in everything. We are wired as worshipers. Every single one of us. We all worship. Sometimes we worship football. Sometimes we worship our girlfriend, our boyfriend, or our spouse, or our job, or money, or power. But all those things are not to be worshipped. Romans 1 says that these are created things, and we're supposed to worship the Creator. Anything, any gift that God gives us, our worship is not supposed to terminate on it. Instead, we are supposed to receive it with thankfulness and let it be a means to the end, which is Jesus. We are supposed to live lives that want to glorify him. So maybe the third takeaway here is not just bring our friends after any obstacle, not just be amazed at when God moves. I mean, utterly astounded, but then to reflect back the glory that he's due to give God the glory for every single work in your life, whether it's the salvation of your son or daughter or your brother or your own soul. To give God the glory for it. We're going to go into a time of worship now where we're going to, through song, give God the glory. And so as we go into, maybe you need to think through these three applications. Pray, repent, confess, adore. Maybe you aren't willing to go through any obstacle. Maybe the amazement of God is just kind of worn off that this man is so compassionate. This man is so loving and you want to find yourself more amazed and you just want to as you sing and glorify God through song you want to leave and glorify God with your lifestyle worshiping with your life however he's moving right now the Holy Spirit be obedient to his leading sit pray think stand lift your hands worship Jesus in whatever way he's leading I'm going to pray and the band's going to lead us in a few songs and You've got a few songs to think and respond. We want to we want to allow you some time to respond, not just, you know, give you two minutes of a song, but give you some time. If you've just come face to face with the with the creator of the world through his word, not through anything I've said, but through his word face to face with the creator. I think that our response time could be a little lengthy coming out of that. It needs to we need some time to think. We need some time to process. We need some time to worship and be thankful. So however God's leading, I pray that you would respond in that way. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It trains us in righteousness. It shows us where we have sin. It comforts us by the power of the Spirit. It convicts us by the power of the Spirit. So I pray that God, as we've read this text and we've seen the authority of Christ in this text held up that he has authority over our lives, that he has come to save sinners and transform sinners because he has a mission to call sinners because of his work on the cross, that we would respond accordingly, that we would give you the glory. Be with us now as we worship spirit, fill this room with praises, fill this room with focus on Jesus not anything else. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.